1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Would you stand with me and let's read this together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to talk this morning about six truths about the right of communion. And in this little series, if you're just tuning in or if you're here for the first time, uh, the title of the series is Know Your Rights, and we're talking about three rights of the church. Um, so this morning, six truths about the right of communion. Uh, the tra- tradition in which you were raised might have called it communion or holy communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or something else. Here at LifePoint, we generally just call it communion. And for the purposes of this message, that is the term I will primarily be using but the first truth, uh, and I want to keep this really simple and really straightforward this morning. The first truth is this, that communion is rooted in a historical event. It's rooted in a historical event. Specifically, it was established uh, and prescribed by Jesus Christ during the Passover meal that we remember as the Last Supper. And he, is, he and his disciples ate that meal together on the evening when Jesus was betrayed, arrested, subsequently Uh, tried and crucified. And when we say, what we say and what we do in our communion observance comes directly uh, from what Jesus said and what Jesus did during that one last meal with them before he went to the cross. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each recorded the event in their gospels that bear their names and their accounts are virtually identical with one exception. Paul's brief retelling in 1 Corinthians 11, which we just read, incorporates all of the events recounted in the Gospels, again with one exception, which we will see just a little bit later. But we need to understand this morning that Jesus Christ himself is the originator, the focus, and the content of communion. It is he who directed that the simple powerful pattern that he laid down that night be rehearsed, be repeated in the church until he comes again. We have no liberty to neglect it, uh, to trivialize it, to modify it, to reinterpret it, uh, or to add fanciful ideas to its meaning. It is a perpetual ordinance for the church for whom Christ suffered died, and rose again. Secondly, communion is exclusively for Christians. It is exclusively for Christians. I want you to see a repeated phrase in Paul's discussion of communion in 1 Corinthians 11. And we will deal with the context or the circumstances which Paul is referencing here a little little bit later. But notice with me that that the the phrase, when you come together, and you'll probably only see this if you have a Bible open, um, 
that phrase, when you come together, is repeated five times in Paul's broader discussion at verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. In verse 18, Paul adds three words to that phrase so that it reads, when you come together as a church. And he's describing the body of Christ, the gathered assembly of the followers of Jesus. He's describing those who have turned from sin and who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. Paul's describing Christians. Christ followers. The participants in the Lord's Supper are believers in Jesus. Gathered to worship God, to exalt Jesus Christ, to build up one another in him. So communion is for the church. The participation is for Christians. It is not for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers may very well be present among us when we gather for communion, and we hope that they will be. I love what John Piper had to say about this. He wrote, there is nothing secretive about the Lord's Supper. It is done in public. It has a public meaning. It is not a secretive cultic ritual with magical powers. It is a public act of worship by the gathered church. In fact, in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a proclamation aspect to the supper. Proclamation, not privacy, is the note to strike. So unbelievers are not excluded from the gathering during communion. We want them to listen. We want them to observe We want them to see the gospel rehearsed in communion. But those who have not believed in Jesus are not invited to actively participate in the communion observance because of what it represents. Third, communion involves physical action. Physical action. And the physical action of participating in the Lord's Supper is not eating a church potluck, Or a seven-course meal. On the contrary, it is very simple. It is eating bread and drinking the cup. Again, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So nothing is specified about the kind of bread we are to eat or or the way it is to be broken or cut. What mattered to Jesus was what the bread symbolized, which is his body, which in a matter of hours from the time he spoke these words would be disfigured by beating and scourging, and then it would be nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he would willingly bear our sins in his 
own body. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that as Jesus went to the cross, as he was hanging there, he was bearing your sin. He was paying the penalty for your sin. He was offering the sacrifice that would result in God's forgiveness of you. In Luke 22, verse 19, Luke records that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is, notice the word, what is it? Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice that word given. Uh, He doesn't say, this is my body broken for you. He says, this is my body given for you. That giving was the ultimate act of sacrificial generosity. John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Sometimes we can think of Jesus as the victim on the cross, that that uh, that he was victimized by the Romans, or maybe first by the Jews, and then by the Romans. But Jesus paints a very different picture. He says, I'm laying it down. And he, and he, and he made this statement long before, long before, Passion Week, when he was arrested and tried and so forth. See, neither is anything specified about we, what we are to drink when we participate in communion. Notice Matthew 28, or 26 rather, 27 through 29. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The fruit of the vine. That same phrase is repeated in the accounts given by Mark and Luke. We can safely assume that the fruit of the vine in Jesus' cup and in the disciples' cups was red wine. It served as a fitting choice for what it symbolized. His blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to understand what what Jesus was saying there. But first let me say something about what should be in our cups during communion. I think that it should be something that reminds us of what it symbolizes. It should remind us of the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And and I suppose, then, that it should be a red liquid. And Jesus called it the fruit of the vine. Not fruit of the loom, fruit of the vine. And I don't know that we should make a real big deal about whether it's wine or grape juice or pomegranate juice or cranberry juice or Gatorade. It doesn't matter. I personally don't believe that it should be wine. And I can just hear someone saying, oh, oh that's because you Christians are teetotalers. You're, you're just narrow. You don't believe in using alcoholic beverages. But that's not it at all. 
And we don't require that here at LifePoint. Your decision regarding alcohol is a matter of Christian freedom as it should be. But the fact is that for some people, drinking alcoholic beverages is not a matter of freedom, but a matter of imprisonment inside a very destructive addiction. Uh, Why then would we use a, a beverage to symbolize the blood that bought our freedom from sin that could have the terrible effect of stealing the freedom of sobriety from them? And that's one of the reasons we use grape juice. Another is the simple fact that minors among us who believe in Jesus would not be able to participate if we put wine in the cup. But here's a maybe a more important question, certainly a more important question. What did Jesus mean when he referred to the cup as my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin? Sometimes we, we just kind of read through these things and we go, that's, that's just the way they talked in the Bible and they use big words and, and I don't know what he was talking about. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah Chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. See, the old covenant was inadequate because no one could keep the law. Um, Israel kept breaking it. You and I keep breaking it. Uh, Paul said that the purpose of the law was never to save us in the first place, but rather to condemn us. It was to show us our sins so that we would understand our need for a Savior and put our uh, and put our trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus Christ is God's only, only, only provision for the predicament of our inability to meet his righteous standard and therefore our separation from him by sin. But through Jesus Christ, God makes a, a new covenant with us. And this is the covenant that's being referred to here in Jeremiah 31, the one that was to come to cleanse us, to forgive us of our sin, to reconcile us to himself, to put his spirit within us, that we would be his people and that he would be our God. It's a one-sided covenant that God makes with covenant breakers. God makes a covenant with people that he knows are perpetual breakers of the covenant. And scandalously, unlike any other covenant in in the scriptures, scandalously, God assumes full responsibility for keeping the terms of the covenant. And that amazing, beautiful new covenant 
is ratified by the blood that was poured out from the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. Before we move away from the subject of the physical action of communion, eating and drinking, it's worth, worth observing that Jesus didn't prescribe a frequency for partaking in communion. Some churches do it weekly, as we have done for the past many years. Some celebrate communion one Sunday per month, some once per quarter. It's a matter of freedom. So we have to employ our intelligence and spiritual discernment to ask some key questions like, what frequency of observance places communion in its proper place and the importance uh, of importance in the life of our church? What frequency or infrequency helps us to feel the value of communion so that we don't become callous to it or treat it too lightly? And these are not always easy questions to answer. And I just want you to know that as we're in a a new chapter in our life as a church, we as pastors and elders are having uh, these discussions, and, and we would ask for your prayer as we think this through and as we pray it through. Fourth, then, communion involves mental engagement. It involves mental attentiveness. Again, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance, remembrance of me. So the mental engagement that we're called to as participants in communion is to focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And specifically, Jesus intends that as we partake in the elements, we remember him. The repeated phrase in verses 24 and 25 is, do this in remembrance of me. So as we, as we approach the table, whether literally or figuratively, as we'll do today, and as we partake in the physical actions of eating and drinking, we are to engage the mental act of remembering. That is, we're to consciously call to mind the person of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, who existed before creation, through whom the world was made, who is one with and co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, incarnated in human flesh by the Virgin Mary, and lived a sinless life of love and obedience to God, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, and who gave his life on a Roman cross, who was dead and buried and who rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And all of this and more we are to remember. And at the center of our remembrance stands the cross. And all that it means for us as sinners who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. The mental engagement of communion provides us with a clear, repeated reminder that Christianity is not mysticism or Mormonism or New Age spirituality. Biblical Christianity is rooted in hard, gritty, historical 
fact. Jesus Christ is not a make-believe Messiah. He's not a mythical superhero guardian of the galaxy. He lived, he had a body and a heart that pumped blood and skin that bled. He died publicly on a Roman cross in the place of sinners so that anyone today who believes in him might be rescued from the coming wrath of God. And that actually happened once for all in space and time on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. So the mental engagement of communion is foundationally remembering. It's remembering, remembering. It's neither dreaming, nor imagining, nor working ourselves up emotionally, nor shifting into intellectual neutral. It's consciously and deliberately directing our minds to remember Jesus. And that engagement roots us over and over again in the historical vehicle For our salvation, bread and cup, body and blood, execution and death. Fifth, communion involves spiritual nourishment. And this is important for us to contemplate this morning. We don't always think of it this way. Why is it? Because an unbeliever could do everything I have described up to this point. In fact, if the devil himself could put on human flesh, he could do it too. There is nothing essentially spiritual about eating, drinking, and remembering. You and I can go through the motions. We each know that very well. So what is it that sets the Lord's Supper apart? What needs to happen so that something more then eating, drinking, and remembering occurs in the few minutes of participation in the rite of communion. What, what is that thing that neither an unbeliever nor Satan can do? Important question. And here's my answer. Neither an unbeliever nor the devil can be spiritually nourished by doing these things. Only a believer in Jesus can be nourished at the table of the Lord. Where does this idea come from? Check out what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And immediately you might notice that repeated word, which is participation. And see, what turns a simple rite into a spiritually nourishing moment is participation. You say, what, mere participation, just being here, just doing it? No. So what does this mean beyond eating and drinking and remembering? Let's, let's look at it a little more closely. The cup of blessing, he wrote, that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We looked at the root of this word two weeks ago. Anyone have an idea what it is? It's the word koinonia. It's translated... In the Bible, in the New Testament, fellowship. 
partnership, community, participation, sharing. Well, let's take it one step further. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Interestingly phrased, because there's a reciprocal dynamic here. The one bread is Christ's body. It, it represents Christ himself. And as we eat, we take him to ourselves. But that one bread, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, is at the same time the source of our oneness. He has taken us to himself. The only reason that we're able to keep hold of him is that he keeps hold of us. So one of the realizations that we ought to have as we come to the table is that we are one in him. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we are equally partakers in his grace. See, what Jesus invites us to is something even deeper and more nourishing than simply remembering. It's participating in the body and the blood of Christ. We are virtually experiencing a sharing, a koinonia, in his body and blood, a partnership in his death. There was a hymn that we would sing in church when I was a young man that corresponds to this idea. It happened to be one of my favorites. The first verse went like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Let me stop right there for a moment. The word interest really means a share, a participation, an inclusion in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? See, Paul gives an illustration in verse 18 then that helps us take one step deeper in our understanding of what participation in the body and blood of Christ means. He says, he asks the question, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And there's that word again, koinonia, participants. They were participants, they were sharers in the altar. Well, who are they and what does that mean? Paul's describing here the priests in the temple to whom God had given the right to eat the meat that had been sacrificed on the altar in the temple. Well, what does sharer or participant or partner in the altar mean? It, it means that they are sharing in or benefiting from what happened on the altar. They are enjoying, for example, forgiveness and restored fellowship with God. So when in verses 16 to 17, believers in Jesus eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. We eat and drink, that is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross. 
And by faith, by trusting in all that God has, is for us in Jesus, we are nourished with each and every one of the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he died on the cross. See, no unbeliever can approximate that. Satan himself can't do that. It's a family meal. And this is probably where Paul came to understand communion as the Lord's Supper. That when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises and blessings of God purchased by the blood of Christ. We are not like the Roman Catholics who believe that when the bell rings, that that bread and that blood actually become the body and blood of Christ in our physical systems. We don't believe that. That's not what Jesus taught. There is no nothing in the scripture that requires us to believe that. Communion is not a cannibalistic act. It's a remembering. Sixth and finally, communion calls us to self-examination. Self-examination. You know, for many of the early churches, the celebration of the Lord's Supper was part of a common meal that they knew as the agape feast or the love feast. Probably better to call it the agape feast these days because love feast might sound sketchy to some. Essentially, it was the early prototype for the church potluck. (laughs) But long before hamburger helper or jello salad had been invented. Earlier, I mentioned that Five times in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul employs that phrase, when you come together. What I didn't say was that on each occasion, Paul was pointing to something that had gone wrong in the agape feast in Corinth. In verse 17, there is the the initial general criticism. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, something's wrong. Something's wrong in Corinth. In verse 18, he begins with the first specific example. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. There were factions in the church. There were divisions, and, and they had kind of clustered around those divisions so that they became like political parties. Their oneness in Christ was forgotten, their disagreements were magnified. And maybe it's a good reminder in this very strident political season that that when we come to the table of the Lord, we don't come as Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or whatever we happen to be politically. We come as Christians. In verse 20, he comes to the heart of the matter. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. In other words, what they were doing was the Lord's Supper in name only. It wasn't the real deal. Why? Because some people were plundering the potluck. Have you been there? They're the ones that to make sure that they arrive early, they're at the front of the line, and they eat more than their share of food so that others go hungry. That's what was happening in Corinth. Some of them were hitting the communion wine a little too hard. And it became a dismal display of divisiveness, of selfishness, of gluttony, and drunkenness. And in verse 27, he goes for the jugular. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
That doesn't sound good, does it? And he, and he tells them that it's because so many of them were eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner that some of them had gotten sick and others had died as a result of the judgment of God. Imagine that. And what does it mean to eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner? Let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we somehow have to make ourselves worthy before we participate. That's not the issue. In fact, that's the antithesis of what communion is all about. You and I have never been, even on our best days, nor will we ever be worthy in any way of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. But we can participate in communion in an unworthy manner by coming to the table when we are, listen now, in unresolved conflict with other believers. Whether it's a family member, a spouse, a parent, a child, or another member of the church. We can come, we can participate in an unworthy manner when we fail to examine the posture of our own hearts. When we have not confessed our sin and not sought God's forgiveness, when we think of our participation in the table of the Lord as a personal practice and fail to recognize that it's really all about Christ and His church. When we come to the table in a cavalier, callous, careless way that fails to discern the seriousness of what happened on the cross. And so Paul says in verses 33 to 34, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. See, I don't know when it was that the Christians started using tiny little cups of wine or grape juice and little tiny crackers (laughs) You know, rather than enjoying a full meal together. But it would be under, entirely understandable, wouldn't it, if the motivation was to remove the gluttony, the potential for gluttony, the potential for drunkenness from the observance of communion. So let's never take the Lord's Supper lightly, life point. Let's not ever fail to assess the seriousness and the power of the cross. Don't ever take the oneness and the unity of the church lightly. Communion is one of the most precious gifts that Christ has given to us as his church. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, and then I'm going to come back and lead you through the communion observance this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the ways that it instructs us, the ways that it inspires us, the ways that it challenges us to a deeper walk, a deeper obedience, a deeper spirituality. And Lord, would you uh, cause us as a church to renew our commitment uh, to a seriousness as we approach this rite of the church, this ordinance that you gave to us, gave to your disciples and through them to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.